Good morning. Good to see you on this damp end of the year Sunday. Is 19 gone? 
Already? 2020, it's going to be great. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Psalm 32.2. No services tonight, no prayer meeting on Wednesday, that's New Year's Day. Andrea's number, thank you uh, for your faithfulness in giving. If you have not noticed, if you look over on the bottom of the other page, our difference there, um, practically nothing for the year. That's, that's amazing. So thank you very much uh, for that. That's, that's great. We, we are a fairly small group, and that's, a, that's, sacri- that's sacrificial giving. I'm sorry? It is, very much so. Thank you to, for all that took uh, part in the Christmas program. That was uh, another wonderful blessing uh, to come and hear um, the Lord's story and the gospel and song, and we appreciate the time that was given and put into that. Offering envelopes uh, for 2020 are here. Um, yeah, try and, t- try and take the same number. That'll save some trouble. So if that works out, that's great. I don't know why it wouldn't work out. So don't take a box that's not yours. So, <laughs> so that, would be, that would be great. So um, I have an announcement that's not in the bulletin. Uh, that's regarding the um, murder mystery. Uh, so for all those who signed up for the murder mystery on a train and dessert night, the event will take place Saturday, January 18th at 7. Uh, that's at the train depot in Lapeer. That's $7 a ticket, and you can get with Jess on the money part. Make checks, if you're going to pay with a check, make checks payable to Thornville, and we'll see you on the 18th. Um, I'm looking here. Was, was there a card here that I was supposed to read? Or was that in the office? Maybe this is it. Nope, that's Dean's. I'm missing something. Okay, it'll turn up and I'll read it. But I don't know when. Also, while I'm looking here, Acts and Facts are here for January. So always good stuff in there if you can take time to read that. All right, well, I don't see it, but there is a card here, and I believe that's from the Henry's. And when we locate it, I'll read it to you. I don't know. I didn't, I don't know if it was in the office and I just forgot to get it. So, okay. Our scripture for meditation this morning is uh, in Psalm, um, read 50, chapter 51.
Let's stand together and open our service of prayer. George, I'm going to pick on you again. Father, we thank you so much today for your goodness to us, that you would allow us to come together and to uh, hopefully worship you with the right heart today. Lord, we thank you, God, for all your provision and your blessings to us as your children. And we thank you, Father, for your word and its encouragement to our soul. Though we can see your hand at work all around us, often we forget you. And we pray, Father, that you will not allow us this day to have our minds wander away from the truth of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, we pray for your work of grace and mercy on souls that are here who do not know you as their Savior. And we pray, Father, that they will indeed trust you in that vein. Father, bless our time in your house today. Bless your word to our souls. And Father, we pray that you would bless uh, the word as it goes forth and speech to the needs of those who are here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 436. Four, three, six in the brown. <clears throat>
favorite hymn. So I purposely look to this side of the room. <laughs> All right. Um, who are you? Naomi. That's who she is. Yes. <laughs> Yep, sinking sand, yes. yes. Over, to, over a thousand tons. Or is it sinking? Is it in the red? Sinking sand. Let's, let's look. Do you have a reason why we look? Is it Christ the solid rock? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Okay. Um, on, on Christ the Solid Rock, I stand. 402, maybe. What number is it, Jolene? Um, 521, I think. Yes. 521, yep. Okay. Is, is that it, Naomi? Yes. Okay. Just, you already give me a reason? Because I've forgotten. Go ahead. So five, two, one in the red.
Scripture reading this morning is Psalm 32, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Stand with me and we'll read together. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you. While you may be found, surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach to him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they, have, or they will not, have, not come to you. Many are woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Your righteous sing, all you who are upright in heart.
standing and get the Trinity hymnal, the red hymnal, and turn to number 495, 495 in the red Trinity.
Our scripture text this morning is Psalm 32. You all know that this psalm was written by David after his horrible adultery with Bathsheba and his orchestrated murder of Uriah, her husband, in an attempt to conceal the fact that Bathsheba was pregnant with his child. David is aware of the mercy and grace of God in dealing with his sin because in verse 2 he extols Blessed is the man, and he's talking about himself, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. The Apostle Paul quotes David's thoughts here in Romans chapter 4, where he is arguing for justification by faith and not by the works of the law. And most importantly, Paul is dealing with the truth of imputation. That is how God in his grace credits our sins to Jesus as a substitute and savior and how God credits Jesus' righteousness to us as his people by faith. Jerry Bridges in his book calls this the great exchange. It's a good way to put it. We have all of our guilt put on Christ. We have all of his righteousness put on us. You know, that's the heart of the gospel, and it should be the be-all and the end-all of the sense of guilt that moral creatures feel when they have done what is wrong. Modern psychology deals with guilt as something remaining from our past, or our childhood, or from our overactive conscience, trained, they say, in a puritanical culture that we have yet to outgrow, and we need to outgrow it and get on with life. And so the great emphasis shifts to feelings of guilt, which is decidedly different from what David confesses in verse 5. He's not talking about feelings of guilt. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David sees his guilt attached to sin. And in the mercy of God, his sin has been forgiven. And with that forgiveness, the guilt is gone too, though we don't always let it go, do we? People have to know the truth concerning sin and guilt and all these various truths that are talked about in the gospel. And psychologists don't help us. 
they want to talk about guilt feelings. Well, do you feel guilty? Well, you shouldn't feel guilty. Well, let me tell you, if you're a sinner and you've conducted sin, the sin is attached to, or the guilt is attached to that sin. That's why people feel guilty. And so the whole idea of trying to get rid of the feelings of guilt without dealing with the sin that caused it is a bogus exercise. So we want to talk today about a savior for sin and guilt because they are twin things. They go together. As we come to God's word, let's seek his blessing. Holy Father, send your spirit upon us. He is the only one that can teach us the truths of your word. We are thankful for the scriptures. We have them before us. This scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. As he guided David to write the very words and thoughts of God and put it down in black and white for us to read and to study and to learn. We're not into human psychology, but we are into what God has to say to us concerning our sin and our guilt that goes with it. Bless us in this hour with the truth. Free us from wrong concepts that we may have picked up in our society, in our educational system, in psychology, and all of those various things. Let us just for this hour concentrate objectively on what your word has to say. Bless these truths, honor your Savior. We pray in his holy and precious name. Amen. Today's study and next week's, we're going to deal with the subject of guilt and sin. You'll notice in your bulletin outline that we want to talk about God as Savior, and He is a Savior for sin and guilt. So the first thing I want to do is ask the question, what is guilt? What is guilt? Well, from a biblical standpoint, it is an objective reality tied to real sin. The real sin is always a breach of God's law. Think of all the different kinds of rules or laws that are prevalent in our country. Sometimes the rules are simply the regulations that we put on our children as parents to protect them, let's say, from harm, from injury. Ralphie, you're forbidden to play down by the pond unless an adult is with you. Now we say that to Ralphie because the pond is deep and Ralphie's, who is age four, doesn't yet know how to swim. We know that the banks of the pond can become very slippery, especially after a hard rain like we've been having. And in the winter, they're twice as bad because... The mud freezes over. We know that the house is some distance away from the pond, away from the watchful eyes of mom and dad. And for all these reasons and more, we lay down the rule. No playing down by the pond unless there is an adult present. 
So, so, if Ralphie heads for the pond anyway because he likes to play in the water or the mud along the bank, that violation of the house rule incurs guilt. Now, the penalty might be a spanking or it might be a suspension of all pond privileges for a while till he learns to obey and so on. His guilt is due to breaking the house rule. Similarly, we have in our country all kinds of rules or laws. Traffic laws. Exceed the speed limit and you are liable to a fine, points on your license, even a revocation of your driving privileges if it's very severe. What about marriage vows? That's rules. Exceed them by being unfaithful to your spouse. May result in divorce, in alimony, loss of property, family turmoil, etc., etc. Because you broke the law, the rules. What about business ethics? Sell a company secrets to a foreign nation or another competitor... What? You'll lose your job. You might even end up in jail eventually. Not to mention the shame of being a traitor, especially if you have compromised the security of your own company. There's all kinds of laws, misdemeanors, civil infractions, criminal conduct, and each carries its own consequence depending on the seriousness of the offense and the law that has been broken. Naturally, naturally, the higher the law, the more severe the penalty, the more severe the punishment. Well, guess what? God is the supreme lawgiver, and he's laid down the law. We use that expression with our kids. He's laid down the law for life and living. It is a universal law. It is not a provincial law. It is a timeless law that is for all ages. It's not a temporary law. It is a non-discriminatory law applying equally to whites as well as blacks, to all races, to all cultures, to all countries, to all peoples, to all nations. No people are exempt. As indicated, the higher the law the greater the penalty. You break a local law, it's a misdemeanor. You might have to pay a fine. Break a state law, you might get a penalty and some jail time. Break a federal law, you're going to get a jail time. Or worse. Depending on the nature of the crime. Well, Because God is creator as well as lawgiver, he has the right and the power to implement his own standard of morality upon his creation and to punish all those who break the law, his law. You can plead, not guilty, all you want, but the evidence will prove God true and you a liar. There's no one in this room, in this pulpit, or in the pew, who is innocent. 
But I may read it for you. Proverbs 16, verse 2. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 2. Or again in Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. I think Nehemiah's confession of Israel's sin is also appropriate to all. He writes, You warned me to return, you, you were warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if, if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. Nehemiah 9, verse 29. There is guilt, brethren, no guilt like that which is accompanies the breach of God's law. We cannot exonerate ourselves. No court in the land can pardon us. We are guilt-laden in conscience even when no one else knows about the truth. This is real guilt attached to real sin, a breach of God's commandments, and we cannot undo what was done. So we need a Savior. We need a guilt offering for us. That's the message of the gospel and the good news. It is that God has provided himself a guilt offering for sin, which he will accept on your behalf and mine. And every breach of God's law, by the way, is a capital offense, which means you sin, you die. You say, wow, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's because of the majesty of the lawgiver. The authority of the law that has been broken. So I want you to learn firstly this morning then that true guilt is firstly and foremost objective. That is to say, it is attached to real sin, a breach of God's commands, and that is why we are guilty before him. It's not just a matter of feeling guilt. It is a matter that you are guilty. Psychologists like to say, well, you know, you have guilt feelings. You need to get rid of the guilt feelings because really you're innocent. No. People are guilty because they know they have broken God's standard of righteousness. And they can hide it from us, but they cannot hide it from God. And their conscience makes them keenly aware of that. It's not a matter of feeling guilty, it is a matter of being guilty. That's the second point, that guilt feelings are subjective and they indicate a response to real or imaginary sin. Feelings of guilt are the reaction of human beings who possess a moral conscience. 
The dog that bites your totter has absolutely no remorse because Junior went away crying his eyes out. The cat that scratches you and draws blood doesn't feel guilty for drawing blood. Now we attribute feelings of remorse to the dog. We do that, saying, Oh, look how sad he is. He's so sorry for biting Junior. No, he's not. He'd bite him again if he pulls his tail. Biting kids who pull tails is a natural response based on the nature of a dog to protect himself from pain. It has nothing to do with a sense of guilt. In some of the playground snowball fights that I had as kids, I hate to admit this, but I, I have to be honest. We sometimes would uh, cheat by packing a stone or placing a piece of coal inside the snowball to make it go farther, yeah, but to inflict pain. Especially if the snow fight were between two enemies and not among friends. So when the weighted snowball smacked somebody in the head, it would disintegrate, revealing the stone or the piece of coal. And when the victim began to cry, the stone experienced no guilt feelings. (laughs) None whatsoever. Though sometimes, depending on the injury, we, the people who threw the snowball, felt guilty. Animal creatures, plants, inanimate objects feel no guilt when they act or are used in such a way as to hurt someone else. But human beings are moral creatures with a conscience. Conscience means con and knowledge, with knowledge. We know better. Hmm. We know right from wrong, given to us by the Creator. So when we do something which is wrong or hurtful or cruel or disobedient to God or conscience pronounces us guilty, and rightly so, it's not guilt feelings. It's guilt because it's attached to what we did that was wrong. Let me suggest some scenarios. Number one, real guilt, objective guilt for sinning, but with no guilt feelings. Hmm, there are people who break the law but feel absolutely no remorse for doing so. Consider the minor, in my, call it minor, the minor infraction of parking in a no parking zone. I mean, there it is, it's got a handicap sign posted on a sign. There are people who do this all the time. To them, the world is theirs for the taking, and they could care less if they cause a handicapped person to walk an extra 50 feet to get into the store. 
And the tickets on their windshield are no deterrent either. They just throw them in file 13. And when the summons arrives from the court, they ignore that too. They are breaking the law, but they don't care. It is worth it to them not to have to walk so far to their destination, so they're going to park in the handicap zone no matter what. Consider something more serious. A ten. Ted Bundy or Jack the Ripper, both of whom were guilty of killing many people. Consider the mass murderers, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. We label such people psychopaths because they can commit the most heinous of crimes against humanity and they feel absolutely no guilt whatsoever. So long as it's not them who's doing the dying, they seem to be able to rationalize or explain away their behavior. They always have an end which justifies the means. They feel no guilt. They would gladly admit it. Suppose a person were arrested by the police and the evidence against him was staggering. The DNA was there. The personal clothing was found at the scene of the crime. There were eyewitnesses. All these things were in a place to support the prosecutor's claim that the one in custody was in fact the guilty one with all these horrendous crimes on his side. But when the defendant got in his court appearance, he protested saying, I am not guilty because I don't feel guilty. I wonder, would the plea be sufficient to secure his release? Well, you know, absolutely not. Any thinking jury would have to find him guilty because of the preponderance of evidence linking him with the crime. The fact that he didn't feel guilty was or is no defense. He should. (laughs) He should feel guilty for taking so many innocent lives. Well, why doesn't he feel guilty? Why is there no remorse? Why, if there were to be a possibility for him being released from custody, would he not go right back to his murderous conduct? The answer? His conscience is unable to experience shame. He thinks of himself as always in the right, even when he does what is horrendously evil. This person is referred to in the Bible. Let me read it for you. Paul is writing. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, that's the times in which we're living, by the way, in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow 
deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, such teachings can come come rather through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. Do you ever talk to a person who has experienced a severe skin burn? The wound has since healed over, but the nerves at that location, let's say a hand... My mother-in-law lost her, the use of her hand because as a child she pulled a hot frying pan off the stove and all that hot grease poured over her hands and burnt and she lost the, the couple fingers and the rest of the hand was severely scarred. Not all healed over, but guess what? The nerves at that juncture were insensitive to pain anymore because the nerve receptors had been irreparably damaged. Do you know that the human soul is like that? Through repeated offenses and violations of God's law of morality, a person can become so used to sin that it doesn't bother him or her any longer Worse, they can become insensitive to the point where the sin is not seen as sin at all, but as a good thing, a righteous thing, as weird as that sounds. They sin happily because there is pleasure in the sin, and they experience no feelings of guilt, and may never be caught and forced to experience the penalty for such behavior. I think of those that are involved in criminal enterprises like the mafia. You think they're really sad when they kill somebody? Oh my, I can't sleep at night. I took so-and-so's life. You think the drug cartels out of Mexico are laying awake at night because their drugs are taking the lives of thousands of people? No, they couldn't care less. The Bible describes these people. It's not like God is ignorant of them. Let me read it for you. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow Blow away like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. 
His hand is raised. He strikes them to strike them down. The mountain shakes. The dead bodies are like refuse in the street. Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Isaiah 5, verse 20 and following. We sometimes ask the question of these unfeeling people. Have you no heart? And when we ask that question, it's our way of saying that to be truly human, there must be more than bitterness and anger and hatred and vengeance. There must be compassion, the desire to help people in their anguish, not be a contributor to it. And so then there are people who are truly guilty of breaking the law of God, but they feel no shame and no guilt. They are at peace with their sin. They are asleep in their sin. They do not lay awake at night in a cold sweat, contemplating God's wrath. They have convinced themselves that there are others who are worse than they. And that God kind of grades on a curve. (laughs) So they will receive a, eh, a passing grade. Maybe they'll escape hell by the skin of their teeth. But escape they will. That's the way they think. The hardened heart is also the deceived heart. Satan would have it no other way since he is a murderer behind their seared conscience. People with real guilt because of sin, but they have no feelings of guilt. So part of their sin is self-deception. So that's a first scenario. It's very prevalent in our society. I don't feel guilty, so I'm not guilty. Secondly, people who feel guilty or are treated as such, but are really innocent as to sin. There's that category too. These are people who are victims of sin perpetrated against them or people who have been taught wrongly as to what constitutes sin. And so they live their lives feeling guilty about a number of things which God has not forbidden. Now the previous group has a seared conscience so nothing bothers them. But this group has an overly sensitive conscience, meaning everything bothers them. Even things that should not bother them. I think Joseph is the classic example. As a young man, a teenager of maybe about age 17, his brothers became jealous of him because of two things. His spiritual insight, his dreams which foretold a day coming in which they, his older brothers, would bow down and serve him. 
Oh boy, they couldn't, they couldn't abide that. And secondly, that Joseph was favored by Jacob over the older brothers and given special privileges and special honors. And so they conspired against him, threw him into a pit to contain him, and then sold him to Midianite merchants en route to Egypt, who in turn put him on the auction block in Egypt, and he ended up in Potiphar's house, Potiphar being the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Now, while some things improved for Joseph, other things did not. His business savvy made Potiphar wealthy, and so he was promoted to household manager. But while Potiphar was away on a business trip, his wife made sexual advances toward Joseph, but when he refused again and again, she arranged for the other household servants to be gone, and then she grabbed Joseph, saying, Come to bed with me. Genesis 39, verse 12. And Joseph fled the house, leaving his outer tunic behind. Oh, no. Because Potiphar's wife used that to spin the lie that Joseph had come to her bedchamber to assault her. Potiphar believed the lie. And he threw Joseph into Pharaoh's dungeon, dedicated to political prisoners. And there he excelled once more because God blessed him. But there he stayed also for more than two years. More than two years. Until Pharaoh noticed him and elevated him to vice regent. Genesis 41-46 says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The scripture says he was sold into slavery at age 17. He was elevated to Pharaoh's service then at age 30. That means 13 years all total as a slave, firstly at Potiphar's house and then his time in the dungeon, 13 years. All this is the result of the favoritism of Jacob towards Joseph. The hatred and jealousy of his brothers, the lie of Potiphar's wife, the anger of Potiphar in believing the lie, the forgetfulness of the cupbearer whose memory lapse forgot to inform Pharaoh of all the injustices until Pharaoh himself needed his dream interpreted. So we ask the question where was God in all? God, where are you? Yes, we're told that God blessed Joseph in all of these circumstances, but God did not rescue him. God allowed him to be abused physically by his brothers, treated as a slave by the Midianites, sold as a piece of meat in the marketplace, elevated and then debased. By Potiphar because of a lie. Betrayed by the cupbearer who shared a prison cell. What is this? His journey is down, down, 
down. For 13 years, down. If anyone was a victim of the sin of others, it was Joseph. Now we're not told that Joseph felt guilty because of all of this, nor that he railed against God, but undoubtedly he was filled with, I think, the why questions. You know, the questions that we get when something comes our way that we don't like or can't abide. Why questions, much like Job, to name another one, whom God did not rescue from hurt and from anguish. Why has this happened to me? Why has God suddenly disappeared? Why has there been no rescue? Why has this gone on so long without resolution? Why am I being punished for something I didn't do? Why? 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 Brethren, the why questions will kill you if you let them. The why questions will make you angry and bitter and callous and stubborn because very frankly, as in the case of Joseph, as in the case of Job, God will not necessarily give you an answer to your question, why? What is more, he doesn't owe you an answer. The guilt you feel as a victim is unwarranted. There's no sin on your part. Just the sin of others who have done something to you. I mean, if anyone should feel guilty, it should be those who have abused you and slandered you and mistreated you and maligned your good name. But there's no shame to you as a victim unless you turn these evils towards God and others in bitterness and anger. God has a plan of victory for you as he did for Joseph, as he did for Job. Let me read it for you. No temptation, no trial has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. I'm reading scripture. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tried or tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. So God is not out to break you, but to make you stand strong. Oh, and one thing more. Paul says, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes 
not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is mm, temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, it's talking about our body, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15 and following. So what is painful, humiliating, scandalous to you may very well overflow to the glory of God depending on how you handle it. What then is the only remedy for true guilt? Well, everyone is guilty as a lawbreaker before God, but we must admit it. To deny it is to call God a liar who declares, all have turned away, they have together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3 verse 12. Or again, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1 verse 8. Verse 10 adds, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. 1 John 1, verse 10. Now these texts are not talking about guilt feelings, but about real guilt as sinners, as lawbreakers. Even so, if our conscience is active and not cauterized, not callous, we will feel the guilt and wish to be free of it. So that means to be free of the sin. Get rid of the sin and the guilt feelings will go. How do we get rid of our sin? Well, we begin with confession and repentance. We're all sinners at birth and by choice. We must renounce that behavior before God. There are no exceptions. Now we know that what things... Soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, reading the King James, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. God's law exposes sin. How does that happen? Well, God says, don't do such and such, and then we do it anyway. Or the law says, do this, and we refuse to do it. Either way, we're guilty. Sin is always a breach of God's law. It began with Adam and Eve, it continues on with their offspring, namely us. Was there no remedy? Well, yes, God has a guilt offering. And it's found in the person of his son. The book of Leviticus is full of many references to the sacrifice of rams as guilt offerings to the Lord for Israel when they sin. But we know that the blood of bulls and goats and animals 
Sacrifices of many kind cannot take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says that. God demanded something more perfect than animals, something more precious. Isaiah 53 verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him, a person, cause him to suffer. The Lord made his life the guilt offering. There it is. Did you know that Jesus' death was especially designed to deal with your guilt and the sin that causes that guilt? Your guilt has been atoned for. God now pronounces all believers not guilty. Not guilty. You know, if a person is declared not guilty by God, then no penalty of the law can apply. You're looking at the supreme lawgiver. Listen to how Paul explains this. Same text, Romans 3. Wherein he just said all the world is guilty before God for breaking God's law. And then he says in verse 21 of Romans 3. But now. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the ransom payment, to set captives free. That's what redemption. That is in Christ Jesus, the redemption that is in him, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Romans 3, 21 and following. What is propitiation? A big word. We throw it around in theology every once in a while. Not too much anymore. It's kind of a King James word. Propitiation is an atoning sacrifice that satiates or quenches God's wrath. Think about it. Let me read it again. It's a, it's a sacrifice that quenches God's wrath. It's an appeasement that douses out the fire. The fire of God's judgment. The angel's words to Joseph. When Joseph contemplated divorcing Mary upon discovering that she was with child, the angel of the Lord corrected his thinking and allayed his fear, saying this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21. 
The psalmist says there's a river flowing from Mount Calvary that puts out the fire. He words it this way. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Psalm 46. You need to wash in this stream. You need to wash in the blood of Calvary. All your sin and guilt will be forgiven. The angelic explanation to John of the people that he saw in the Revelation was this. These are they, John is talking, or the angel is talking to John. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7 verse 14. That's our redemption. It's the blood of Christ. So the guilt that goes along with the sin is dealt with directly because God deals with the sin question in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question this morning is, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you trusted in the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Get rid of the sin and the guilt will go away. Hang on to your sin and the guilt remains. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will make this clear to our people. Make it clear to our hearts. To get rid of the guilt, we need to get rid of the sin. How can we get rid of the sin? Well, we can't, but there is a Savior who died for the sin that we have committed. And whose blood atones for the sin that we have done. So he took upon himself the guilt. And the writers of scripture call him the guilt offering. Not a ram, not a goat, not a sheep, not a woolly creature, but the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We rest in him today. We thank you for such an atoning sacrifice. Let us not rest upon our goodness so-called, nor even on our alleged right conclusions or choices. We don't choose a right. We don't take the righteous path. It's the work of Christ on our behalf that sets us on that path. I pray that we will learn to love thee more and to love Christ deeply because he came willingly. In his own words, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. 
Who wouldn't love a Savior like that? And yet our sin of disbelieving and disobeying continues to fight within ourselves. And we think there must be something good in me. I can't accept this. But the goodness is to be found in Christ and in him alone. And that's why we need his righteousness imputed to us. Lord, please do that. Show yourself a savior today to someone. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 195. 195, let's stand as we sing. Great hymn, nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood.
particularly like verse 3. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, sometimes people hear the gospel being presented as some kind of a partnership, and they will make statements like, God has done all that he can do to save you. Now the rest is up to you. And by that, they mean, okay, now you need to enter into the partnership. But that's why I like this verse. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our Lord is a Savior. He is the sole Savior. You are not in partnership with Him to save yourself. But you are a recipient of His grace. And He gives grace and mercy to whom He will. He says that, Romans. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will pardon whom I want to pardon. Say, He can't do that. Oh yeah, He can. It's called God, and you're a creature. say, well, that makes me awfully dependent. Yeah, it does. That's where all of us need to be, dependent upon this great God and Savior. Father, we thank you for your truth. Humble us. Remind us that it is nothing in our hands that we bring. It's simply your cross. And your cross work, you dying for our sins, you paying the penalty that we should have paid. And if we are saved this morning, it's because we're trusting in Jesus and that work which he did at Calvary. We're saying, yes, I believe he did that for me. I pray that you will grant us that faith and repentance. Help us to lay aside those uh, good feelings we have about ourselves and see that all goodness comes from God and that it is our Savior who is the good and gracious and merciful. And that's why all of us, any of us, are saved. Give us a good day today as we celebrate the new year, as we think about family and friends. As we think about our salvation, the end of a new year, beginning of a new year, we ask, Lord, that you will help give us the resolve to live in such a way that the new year will be a blessing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Don't forget your envelopes. Sign, up, sign for them out here on the table and take them home with you.